Welcome to the Rumpus Room. Hey everybody, how's it going out there? It's the boys from the Midwest back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room. And let's hit them with the takeaway message of the day. The takeaway for today is on understanding your anxiety. And I, I and I, we've been hitting this one for a while and you can tell where, where my mind has been. But what I've... I've, I've read this new book, which is called Unwinding Anxiety, and it's by a, a PhD and a psychiatrist. And he is very interesting because I think he's tested his, his program versus cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think the biggest shift that I sensed is on you can't think your way out of anxiety. And so what what kind of like a bigger takeaway that I have is you have these habit loops that you get into. So let's just say you start to feel anxious. Like you, you think of work and then you start to feel anxious so that you start out with what is the trigger? What is the response? And then the relief, which is to gain relief. I will do, you could do a number of things. You know, I can go, uh, um, eat food. You know, I can go grab, I get some food to get to eat. I could go check social media. I could go pour myself a drink. It's like, it's understanding how you get relief from these triggers. So that's kind of the first thing that I thought was very interesting. There's a lot more in the book and we'll, we can unpack it later. But what I found very helpful is just going through an exercise where I thought of these triggers for me and then what I would do. So what would be my response, whether it was to go, you know, read a book and that would get me momentary relief. But it, you know, the thing that, you know, kind of step two, which, um, has helped me is become more aware of that relief. And is that relief helping you? So there's a lot of mindfulness in, uh, kind of this understanding or the understanding or unwinding of anxiety. So it's helped, helped me, I think, be more aware of what is driving my anxiety. And instead of trying to, you know, substitute a thought loop or substitute a habit of, oh, instead of getting distracted, I'm going to go do five push-ups. It's really being aware of what am I doing when I get anxious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I found that I have, uh, you know, some common common loops and one of them could be worrying. So there's just a, there's a whole lot there. And what I enjoyed was, uh, and I thought is a little bit, uh, it's a very good shift is instead of having the psychologist or the psychiatrist or your family or your best friend diagnose you as what's wrong, it really had to come from you and then you being more aware of what you were doing. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a typical thing. It really had to be explored by the individual which helped me it's been helping me really understand what's going on in my mind yeah more of an empowering message certainly um and one that i think a lot of people could use uh it's kind of interesting when speaking of anxiety so my son is three weeks old and it's kind of funny because he wakes up and then he's it's just a time bomb as far as like how long it takes him for him to realize that he's hungry and have that need not being met. And he gets anxious because he thinks he's dying and he's like worried that he's going to die. <laughs> so <laughs> He's communicating to us that he's like, I'm going to die. I'm hungry. <laughs> and he doesn't understand like any, you know, he doesn't have the means to do anything about it. So he's extremely helpless. And it's, uh, it's just kind of funny to watch like him struggle with this thought of like, I'm going to die. Uh, and you know, it's our job obviously to satisfy his needs and tell him he's not going to die and, uh, get him some food. And then he's totally fine. He's like amenable for a little while. And then he exhausts his energy and just goes to sleep again. And that's like the cycle that we live in now. Um, and he's processing his 
triggers very real uh, and very audibly as well. I, I, I call him an excellent communicator because if something is wrong, you will know. And if it's not wrong, then there's nothing to talk about, which I kind of appreciate. Uh, so who knows if that's genetically something that I've encoded in myself that perhaps or passed down from, you know, Grandpa Scogland or whatever. I don't know, but it's kind of funny to see that. Um, but the other thing related to anxiety that I think he's taught me is the belly breathing, you know, um, it's always people talk about like how belly breathing is a tool and all infants come out and belly breathe and you can just watch it. He, his entire chest mm -hmm. cavity moves and it's all driven from his diaphragm. It's always diaphragmatic breathing, always through the nose, always these big, huge, deep breaths, which are kind of, it's really impressive to watch like the purest form of function. And we've just so bastardized our breathing and our way of life. Um, I actually heard some, a woman, the mother of mindfulness, they call her. Uh, I can't remember who, what her name is. I'm sure it would come up if we did a Google search, but I believe they, they call John Kabat-Zinn the father of mindfulness in the Western world, at least, you know, we're mm -hmm. obviously late to the party here. Um, but the mother of mindfulness, she actually ventured to say that she would go as far as saying that all disease in the in modern civilization can be influenced by breathing. And she wasn't saying that, like, you know, it can cure it, but she was kind of suggesting that, like, she thinks inappropriate breathing is kind of the foundation for a lot of our disease. I would agree with that because uh, what I think we're very early on in our understanding of how inflammation and how stress and how diet, all of these factors are influencing our disease patterns. And I think breathing is the most foundational start to all of that. It's the one thing that you do the most in life. I don't think there's a single other task, maybe blinking, right? <laughs> Actually, probably not because you sleep, you, sleep. And, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, and today's Father's Day. So shout out to all the fathers out there. Uh, I, I have to admit that it doesn't feel real. <laughs> Your first one, right? My first one. And it doesn't feel like much um, just because I'm still a bit overwhelmed with this situation. But, uh, I mean... Not overwhelmed isn't the right word because, I mean, it is. It is overwhelmed. Uh, <laughs> there's no way around it. It's overwhelming. Uh, it's a 100% lifestyle change, but uh, it's totally welcomed, which is why I want to not be like, you know, I want to certainly not suggest that it's not something that I'm extremely excited and happy about. So, yeah, the word overwhelm, maybe not in such a negative connotation. Yeah, and it's so funny when we go outside because uh, he is so enamored with nature. Uh, I can actually just see like when he looks at natural settings, the brain stimulation is just on another level. Um, so it's so important to get out and breathe that air and see like, you know, the various different and apparently he can only see black and white right now, which I didn't realize that babies can't see color for a little while. Mm. Um, anyway, but, uh, so we were going outside yesterday, uh, and it's, it's critical for us Minnesotans and us Midwesterners who, you know, don't get that routine sort of like dose of vitamin D. Like if you live in Southern California, I mean, it's 75 and sunny, like, I don't know, 70% of the year it's wild. And up here. It's totally different um, because the summer seasons are so short. I, I, I'm blinking here and we're almost to the July 4th holiday, which in the Midwest is a big deal and cabin culture is a big deal and um, the lakes are a big deal. And it's so fun to go out and just kind of explore the water. Um, I think we've talked about some of the shenanigans that occur during the July 4th holiday before. One of them is, uh, is a big... And I, I believe this happens all over the all over the nation. Um, you know these kind of big flotilla boat parties. Uh, Lake Minnetonka 
located about 15 minutes west of uh, Minneapolis, is one of the meccas of uh, kind of July 4th activity, I think you'll find in the United States, to be honest. Um, And there was actually at one point a MTV crew filming to do a reality television show out on Big Island. And uh, they decided against it for whatever reason. Probably wasn't as interesting as they thought. But I thought, it's not that interesting. We've no. been out there a number of times. <laughs> it's not interesting in any sort of like stimulating way. It's watching yeah, like, people like be Survivor. Yeah. You think of like Survivor or these shows that they've got. I mean, we've gotten into the show like alone. A very different type of. Uh, human problems and i think people would get pretty bored with that lifestyle out there watching drunk people make fools of themselves in scantily clad outfits and you know men try and best each other women out seduce each other it's a A lot of shaved chests out there yeah you're not going to see a lot of shoulder pads there's not going to be a lot of body hair (laughs) at that party no, which uh, is too bad, as we've discussed on the last podcast. And what rule number was that? Yeah, rule number one is be confident with your chest hair and uh, shoulder pads go. too. If you got them, uh, rock those shoulder pads this summer. We'll be looking yeah, for them. This is the twenty twenty one is the year of the shoulder pad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mine only took uh, thirty years. I guess I'm thirty one now. Uh, about thirty years to have my shoulder pads coming in, but I'm pretty excited about them. Oh man, if you hit 33, it's like those are like hyper growth years, 31 to 33. <laughs> oh yeah, they're really. <laughs> I've got a. I'm gonna add a couple inches to my uh, to my yeah. suit coat. <laughs> yeah, it's like they've been appropriately watered, and they are yeah. just gonna sprout <laughs> just up, sowing the seeds of of the hair follicles on my shoulders. Yeah, I don't know what <laughs> DNA gene that is that is a you know it's one of these late genes that shows up at 31 30 and a half maybe and you just start growing back hair growing shoulder pads (laughs) there must have been like uh an evolutionary advantage for having shoulder pads i would hope so so I, i think there is because what it would do is it would push your clothing um, like further off of your body, you know, like allowing more moisture to be between, you know, your loin cloth or your deer skin jacket. Yeah. Well, I, I think two distinct advantages that I, well, not advantages, but one of the things is I don't get bit by mosquitoes. Um, well, yeah. Who wants to go through that, that obstacle course to get access to your skin? Nature's nature set up a barbed wire fence for you. (laughs) Yeah. Why would you you fly in the face of nature and shave that off? That's something I don't quite understand. Yeah. Who needs a vaccine when you have back, you know, a shoulder pad? Yeah. Yeah, I think the research is going to come out pretty soon that, uh, body hair actually repels the coronavirus it makes you laugh (laughs) yeah well i would think in these countries where mosquitoes like in africa are rampant i think uh, a distinct evolutionary advantage is to be growing back hair or i'm not necessarily back hair but shoulder hair well body hair in general natural defense mechanism you know Mm -hmm. which could be why sasquatch is so hard to uh to catch he's got so much body hair he's just way more advanced one of the things that it also does, which I don't know if this is an advantage, but every single day at the end of the day, I have a ton of lint in my belly button. <laughs> guilty as charged. Absolutely guilty as charged. So it's like, it is the, it's like basically, <laughs> it is basically a self cleaning of lint and then it deposits into one central location. Yeah, it's optimized <laughs> all day. These little hairs, they're like coral, you know, just cleaning, cleaning the ocean. Yep. Gathering things up for you, really consolidating your waste removal process. <laughs> yeah. What are those bug, those uh, animals that go into whales and clean their teeth? There's some know. type of fish. There's a fish. I don't know. Saw this, but I I think that's the role of the chest hair and shoulder pads is gathering, you know, unnecessary substances and depositing them into a central location so you can dispose of them. 
So yeah, I mean, it's optimized body hygiene practices, really. Yeah, I uh, I think we have a cleaner body because of it. So <laughs> yeah. just ask uh, one of though, our wives if they agree with that. Um, even though Big Razor, uh, Big Razor will have you believe that you're going to need a shaved chest. Yeah, the the guys at we're not going to say, but uh, they give you a shave for a one you know a very small amount. They want you to believe you should be shaving everything off. I mean, that's, uh, that's just another one of those you know, big, uh, big men's hygiene, you know? Yeah. We got, you got big food, you got big pharma and got you big got tobacco. big men's hygiene. Yeah. You got big weather. Big tobacco. It started with big tobacco. And you got big AccuWeather out there just telling you that every time you look at the app, there's a chance of rain. Yep. I Click mean, on the app trash. again to, to see what time it's going to rain at. So yeah, and that that's a very frustrating thing is big weather, and then you got big news now. I mean, we've all experienced big news. Oh yeah, very big news. Well, here on the Rumpus Room podcast, you got you got uh, you got big news, but with a lowercase b. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it, not in all caps it, like everywhere else. It's it's uh, it's certainly exaggerated. I was uh, just chuckling. We were up. Uh, at um, a gathering with some of our family members. And uh, we have a tendency to exaggerate in our family. And tendency, yeah. a tendency is, <laughs> another, is, to, is another exaggeration. It's an exaggeration in the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> it is a gross underestimation. I mean, it is a, or an underrepresentation of the amount of exaggeration that occurs in the the in the conversation and i was just chuckling because uh we had uh this big group of people and i don't remember how it came up but uh you, our cousin mike i uh, we were talking and, and his father is probably one of the biggest exaggerators out there which is pretty much like saying yeah, it's coming the, from an exaggerator who knows exaggeration that's a huge exaggerator <laughs> that's like saying you're on the Brooklyn Nets and he is Kevin Durant of point scoring. I mean, he is, yep. he, he, he's chief exaggerator. And I, I still probably don't know if a person who, ha, who can talk as who can stretch a, a, a statement as much a as story. a yeah. story and I, or I just, a restory that we all know already. Yep. And we are repeating it in a Yeah. It's so yeah. Cousin Mike, well, and I, and I don't remember uh, how it came up, but uh, somebody had just said like a statement that was just gross out of proportion. And I don't remember if it was me or him. And I was like, oh, we don't have a tendency to exaggerate. And it was so hilarious because we all just burst out laughing because we knew we were not even talking about anything at all. But it was some big story about, you know, who knows what. But uh, that is uh, certainly a trait of our of our circles. Yeah. I think, you know, I was talking about that with my wife is we have such a storytelling family. We like to tell stories and to have fun and, to, you know, be together and we get a lot of camaraderie out of that. And that leads to a lot of, <laughs> well, I gotta, I know in order to compete or in order to make this thing go, there may be a little sprinkle dust on every end of the story because <laughs> we, you know, and one of the things she was saying is like, oh, her family doesn't, isn't as good at storytelling or doesn't tell as interesting of stories. Um, interesting, you know, and so we were kind of laughing about, you can tell the familial differences between the, you know, the ways people interact and it's a very like jovial and innocent and fun way to communicate. And, you know, we've had so much fun with everybody and it is funny to kind of look, look at some of, excuse me, stories that we tell. Cause it's, it's very entertaining. Yeah. It's a skill to be able to tell a story and you, you have to blow them out of proportion when you live in the Midwest, because you know, there's not that much that happens. <laughs> you know? Well, let's be honest. I mean, anywhere you go, it's not that exciting. No, like every every day, everyday life isn't like this wild, exciting time that we kind of try to make it up for. And that's something that I think I learned that like in my upper 20s, 
you know, and I was trying to run around every weekend and live this super exciting life and oh, live under the lights and live at night and live in the day. And it's just like when you kind of get back to re I don't want to say reality, but you get back to like what is living every single day. It's not like crazy, crazy exciting. <laughs> that's, yeah, you know, it's not what you hear on Facebook or you're not you don't see that on TV. You know, you don't really see it anywhere. But no. that's that's kind of one of the things I've walked away for a little bit more when I'm older is like I love having fun and I love doing things that are fun and trying to have fun. But in, in the general sense, it's not like the volumes at nine all the time. Yeah, which obviously, you know, as you get old, the volume, uh, you need to turn that volume down in order to sustain it because there's just so much, so much going on all the time. Um, anyway, yeah, so it's, uh, it's that fun time of year, though, summertime, where you do hear a lot of stories, you do hear a lot of, uh, you know, you're, you're surrounded by family, or we are at least, uh, and one place we, we do that is up at the lakes, and cabin culture is such a huge thing or even just lake culture in general is such a huge thing for the midwest i think it's something that's truly unique um and something that is so near and dear to to my heart because of the uh is the history uh and it's so funny you know friday afternoons in the summer there's a lot of offices that do summer hours where they will cut the workday at uh 12 o'clock and nobody works in the afternoon which i absolutely love when that's like part of your company culture to bug out early on the weekends and something that you can't really do in Southern California because every day is, you know, every weekend could potentially be that gorgeous weekend. And, you know, so that's one of the reasons I think that the Midwest has such a long history of kind of like labor, you know, as far as like manufacturing being out of the Midwest, the steel workers, all that sort of thing. Yeah, the railroad. And one of the things that I, I think is, you know, why this cabin culture is because we have such a, a familial history of like actually living in a town with a lake in it. And it's not like, oh, everybody's had cabins. It's like our that's where our my, our father grew up yeah, on his hometown. That was his hometown. He went to a school and what was there? I was like 25 or 35 kids that graduated mm-hmm. and that's that's where he grew up and so i think that's where that cabin culture comes from is from being from a smaller town and it's not you know i think because some people i I think there's this sense that it can be you know like you it's a privilege to have a cabin which it really is and there's definitely a background to that because we have a you know like farming communities and living in smaller towns and and just the support of that I think is fun to, to see. And having a cabin is definitely different than living at, you know, in some of these towns, which, you know, sometimes there's some, some tension between those two factions of people. Uh, But I think it's really, it really kind of goes deep, I think, into the Midwestern roots of growing up at a, on the cabin and, and your summers are spent you know, at summer camps or on the beach of the the town beach and you learn to water ski and you do, you know, you've got all these lake activities, which are quite fun. And I think we've grown up with a lot of lake activities and we're very considerate. We're very fortunate to, to have that. <clears throat> and then being surrounded by a lot of family members has, has made it a lot, you know, a ton of fun. I mean, we, we're some of the luckiest people because of you know, we've got a, a close family. We're all in a similar age range. You know, we're very alike. We, we just talked about how we love telling stories. I, I, it's a very a good thing. But, there, you know, a lot of other people in the Midwest go, you know, there's tons of lakes in the, around the city. So if you live in the city, there's a lot of beaches to go to, a lot of picnics. I mean, I see volleyball games. I think spike ball has become super popular. It has seeing these games of spike ball, which spike ball is super fun and extremely tiring. Yeah. Um, it's extremely aerobic. And speaking of, uh, water skiing, you had a, a bit of a mishap last weekend. Yeah. So I, you know, one of the things that we always joke about is like, you want to make it through without getting injured. Well, this year ski number one of the year, I, uh, I, uh, 
I tweaked my ankle pretty pretty bad. And what the the doctors are telling me is it's a high ankle sprain, which uh, you know is very humbling. Uh, I don't think I've gotten hurt water skiing ever. I know I've took taken some pretty hard falls wakeboarding, but I've usually been pretty good at keeping my my balance water skiing and not pushing the envelope too much. And I was just really tired and it was at the end of the run. And I, without going into a lot of detail, my ankle was pretty, got pretty, pretty banged up. So I have, uh, really was unable to walk on it for a few days. And now I'm just kind of getting back to normal walking activities, but it's going to be a, a long road, but man, is that humbling to, you know, first of all, it's spend some time with you and you and your son and then see the work. And then my wife is pregnant and kind of understand how, how an injury would really impact the rest of the family, especially in these early moments when you, you know, you need kind of all your, your, your wits at you. And the last thing you need is an ankle injury or some injury. Oh, I, I couldn't imagine having a newborn and being laid up in some capacity. And which it makes me think of, one of the times where I saw my mom most quickly change a state from jovial <laughs> to just utter terror and furious anger. And you probably know what I'm talking about. Oh, I can. I know exactly the moment you're talking about. I remember it. And it was a ski trip to Colorado where uh, my father went before and was skiing with his buddies. And we were going to meet up with him. And so my mom flew out with our grandparents. And um, and us. And us. And the so boys. she is managing three young boys, probably ages, I don't know, 12 to 5 somewhere in that range and uh two grandparents who are certainly helping to a degree but also there's a fair amount of management that goes into you know managing grandparents which she does a great job of and so she's taking care of uh you know six people well five people at this point not including herself and she expects to see our father come walking out of this condo that he's at with his buddies when he's skiing and she's talking to him and he goes, he, he says, well, you're going to have to come up and get my bag. And she's like, what do you, what do you mean? And then he explains to her that he broke his foot and he comes out and he's on crutches. And I, I'll swear to God, I've never seen a quicker state change because the reality of the next, I don't know, four or five days of her having to like manage all of us kids and and my dad oh my gosh she was so mad so mad well ski trips are pretty pretty dad heavy you um, need a lot of carrying yeah the dad the dads carry a lot of weight when you're doing a ski trip because it's lugging yeah lugging like physically carrying a lot of weight because the kids yeah, are you know tired you and skis whatever. and then you're usually picking kids up and you're they're falling and you're picking them up and they're falling and so there's a lot of, a lot of weight management that dads do a lot of, a lot of work on. <clears throat> and that one, she realized it was falling squarely on her shoulders and, uh, goodness, we made it through successful, but, uh, I look at, you know, the workload right now with being a dad, that would be real tough to be banged up. So, I mean, obviously you're going to get better by the time your, your son is born, but it'll be a bit mm -hmm. of a slow summer for you. It's going to be a bit of a slow summer, which, you know, you can see why I'm reading books on anxiety and stuff like that. Cause I'm usually a mover. I like doing stuff, you know, active. I like going on walks. I like, you know, being outside and doing stuff. So right now that was a, that was a tough pill to take. So I'm having to, to throttle down the, uh, the go go button and focus on some other things, which is good. Cause it's, a, you know, allowing me to focus on work. And instead of, you know, wanting to get outside and go on pontoon boat rides or meet my friends out for something or, you know, just being active, I can, can you swing a kind golf of take club a yet? deep breath and what can you swing a golf club? Uh, I can do like a half swing. Um, I, I have, I've kind of given myself the, 
time off to just say, all right, we're going to not do it yet. I'm going to, I think probably tomorrow or the next day swing. Cause see if I can make it. There's a, we have a league on Wednesdays, which I obviously had to miss, but yeah, that we, I'm unfortunately missing a father's day golf outing, which, you know, is, is one of the kind of the bedrocks of father's day on my uh, wife's side, which is always super fun. So we got to miss that one, which is too bad. So yeah, these injuries when you get older, and I think the term that we've heard is called is weekend warrior. Uh, and that's comes from, you know, trying to live this really active lifestyle and kind of make up for your week sitting inside. And so you push it just a little too hard. <laughs> yep, so. absolutely. And uh, our father being an ER physician used to always kind of talk about the injuries that he would see from people coming into the ED who were obviously just weekend warriors trying to do too much. And that's always something that stuck that has stuck in my head is like, am I biting off a little bit too much here with this, uh, with this sawing down of a tree or whatever it is that are, you know, the dangerous activities of the weekend, um, mm -hmm. skiing included. And I always think about tubing because I, you know, I never enjoyed tubing. Neither did I. Neither did I. We did a lot of it growing up, but uh, even such, people would always be like, oh, do you want to go out on the tube? And I was always kind of like, well, sure, I will. Is that what everybody else is doing? Okay. I guess we have to. But looking back on it, it was never something that I enjoyed. It was always like I'm fearing for my life and I'm holding on to try to avoid <laughs> a certain injury. <laughs> I mean, Well, who has control? Nobody. I mean, or you don't. You're at the whims of everybody else. So as a little little kid in the middle of the lake with a life jacket on and you're kind of afraid of the deep water, not a recipe for like a really pleasant experience. <laughs> yeah. And um, the injury component is just so high. We used to always hear stories of people who had gotten injured tubing when they would show up in the ED. And finally, our father put the foot, his foot down and was like, we're just not doing this anymore. It's too dangerous. And uh we actually heard of a horrendous uh, tubing accident. Uh, speaking of weekend warriors, I believe alcohol was involved on uh, the part of the drivers, but a girl from my class, uh, my senior year actually, was hit by a boat while tubing. And um, mm. I couldn't imagine the horror. Thank God, like neither of them got hit, got thrashed by the prop. Um, but there was some permanent damage as far as like uh massive bone fractures that had to be repaired and uh oh it took her a man. while to get back to walking and that's one of those things that i look like i look at and just go man what risk reward here this is this is super dangerous it's uh we're lucky that nothing really bad ever happened but anytime i see people tubing i always kind of think you know especially on busy water if you're tubing out in the lake where there's nobody else, you know, I get it. It's probably lower risk, but you get to these big crowded lakes. And if you're whipping somebody around on a tube, um, it's just a very high risk activity. And uh, yeah, these, these yeah. lakes in the cities, there's just a lot of people. And once you start getting alcohol involved, it gets, you know, because your decision-making is just so poor and, if you're inexperienced boat drivers and I say inexperienced is like less than five to 10 years because you have to really understand how people are driving. And, you know, we were fortunate to have a lot of boating experience where now when I go to some of these big lakes, I am freaked out. I mean, I, cause you're on edge cause you know that the issue is going to be somebody else driving. Yep. And, and so the... you're on edge and when you stick, some young kids in a tube, it's, you know, it's a lot harder to control them. And you, you know, the big lakes is a lot. And I think it's so fun to be out on the water and to be doing these types of activities. Um, you know, so what's, what's something that say somebody wants to go out on the lake instead of tubing. I mean, we water skied a ton. We kneeboarded a lot. Uh, so there's other stuff. And I know wake surfing is like the popular thing which brings up all the people that get frustrated because the wakes that they, the waves that they kick out on these boats are huge. I mean, they're like, huge. <laughs> they could be 
boat like bone overturning waves boat overturning waves yeah uh hopefully this summer is one where that injury you know knock on wood is uh the only one we get um and it was probably equipment malfunction realistically mm-hmm. right i mean you just had the boot too tight you didn't pop out of the ski which is yeah a that problem. was my fault is it it would have been fine if i because i probably would have just done the the like skip on the water mm-hmm. um but it didn't come off so then my ankle got uh got caught up and my body was trying to go one way and my ski was stuck in the other way and usually that is preventable so right now i'm dealing with that and you know i'm fortunate to get out of it without something major major happening and you know i just i i think you kind of when you whenever you get an injure injury you always take a step back just wondering like oh well what is what do i really want to be doing yeah i think more I had my, this is my first ever shoulder injury and I got it skiing this last winter and, uh, it's still, it's still prevalent. And that was three months ago. Still can't believe how long shoulders take to heal. Oh, well, and you know, and in, in all my experience with orthopedics, shoulders are some of the hardest to recover from. They're the most painful injury to recover from. I just so, looked at some data for one of our clients and it was kind of interesting. We looked at their data and uh, they have a very large orthopedic group and um, it's called a PIOA. It's like a performance identification opportunity assessment or something like that. And uh, they identified orthopedic surgery, um, total knee and total shoulders to be in the 100th percentile in terms of number of procedures done per thousand people and uh, they were in the 84th percentile for hips so they're doing a lot of those procedures and it's um, and this is in the medicare population so replacing a lot of shoulders and knees and be interesting to see what happens long term i know you're more connected to the industry overall as far as like the stem cell thing um, and versus total shoulder replacements and you know getting an artificial joint in there um, i mean the the advancements that have been made are just un- unbelievable. Um, and I'm like you holding out for stem cells, but I did hear a buddy of mine had back pain and he got a stem cell injection and he said it was the most painful thing he's ever gotten in his entire life. Well, stem cells in the U S basically don't do anything. So yeah, you have to go abroad to even get, so I, I would caution anybody out there and this is, there's a lot of published data. And if you look at your stem cell, like say go to, you go to a stem cell website, there's not usually a lot of reputable physicians that are doing stem cells. So a good way to kind of eye test, is this working or not? Um, but it, that stinks that he had a bad, a bad experience. So he got a, it was in his back. He was trying to cure back pain. Yep. Spine. Um, he said it was just horribly painful. He couldn't do anything for a week. And then uh, apparently that's common and it's supposed to then get better, but he was still in like that phase where it, he didn't really notice anything yet. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of uh, discoveries on stem cells. And I, I, you know, I've been fortunate to have kind of an inside track on what's going on and the U.S. is way behind what everybody else is doing because the rule in the U.S. is you can't, you can't replicate the cells because they think they're going to, you're going to start trying to clone a whole ton of salmon atoms out there, which would be kind of a, that wouldn't be a good thing initially. Uh, so they're, they're worried about that. Um, but there's a lot of interesting things happening. They're cloning, they're, they're cloning polo horses. They're doing a lot of stuff out there. So there, there's a lot of research going on. I think we're just a little behind our, um, yeah, I don't you know. think it's far off where we have like genetically modified athletes. I mean, steroids is just the tip of the iceberg, I feel like, as far as like what performance enhancing capabilities we are going to have. I mean, I I wouldn't put it past our certain Olympic competitors to be already down that track of like experimenting with genetic modification for athletes. I So it's funny you say that because today I was watching the, the men's 
hundred meter prelims, you know, with yesterday. And I was just trying to see, and I look at those guys and I, you know, it's hard to, hard to think that they're not, uh, they're not doing something that we don't know about. I think you found out like the, the race of the hundred meters with Donovan Bailey, all nine guys were taking steroids. You know, every one of them got caught. So that year, nobody won a gold medal in the 100-meter dash because everybody's on steroids. So it's just – it's really hard to to see. And one of the one of the interesting documentaries out there is on that Russian guy who basically deal, dealt with um, – this guy who, who was researching EPO in bicyclists and stumbled onto one of the Russian scientists who – was in a lab and was actively giving steroids to Russian athletes. That kind of started the whole thing. Can't remember the name of the documentary. I think it's but Icarus. Icarus. That's it. Mm-hmm. You can I, kind of fast forward to the first 45 minutes. Cause the guy just, there's a lot of selfies of it, him, but uh, the second half is pretty interesting. I did not make it through. I watched the first half and was just like, I'm kind of bored here. That guy was super boring. If you can, like the second half is way more interesting than the first half. Way more interesting. At first, it should only be the second half. The guy, you know, unfortunately, you can kind of feel his, he loves talking about himself. And that's, it, it's too bad. It's two separate documentaries. The second half is much better. The other one that I just finished, I did watch all of the Alone series on uh Oh yeah. Netflix. Did you finish the season? Oh, yep, we did. Cuz there's two of them, right? Yeah, this was season season 7 and I won't ruin um who wins, but uh that show, I love that show. Oh my gosh, it's the best. Yeah. That's that's me and my wife's favorite show. What these people do, the skills they have, is just just blows my mind. It's funny because when we watch the show, sometimes I chuckle and think of stuff you've said. And I was like, Adam would, I I could see you trying to do some of this stuff. Oh, <laughs> I would love to, but I am so ill prepared. There would be, I would make it probably like 10 days max. There's no oh, way yeah. I would even be oh, in yeah. contention. I mean, I mean they're, these eating, people... they're eating plants that you have to know if it's poisonous or not. You know, there, there's just so much that goes into it. The thing that blew my mind, um, this uh, this episode was the Musk Ox Saga. Uh, this dude shoots a musk ox, which is, you know, a ox that uh, roams the northern part of Canada. Um, and you're, have you looked at the Great Slave Lake where it is? No, I just know it's huge in the north, oh, but... Check out Great Slave Lake on Google Maps to get a concept of where this is. And it's it's, it's way up, up there, there man. It? It's way up there. And uh, this one dude shoots a musk ox, and I can't even believe what he's doing with it. He's taking the brains and using the brains to, like, hydrate his leather gloves. He's eating the fat uh, behind the eyes. He's, like, skinning the layer of fat off of... Uh, the the head and the hide everywhere uh when he decided to eat the hoof i was just like this is insane this guy is nuts he's absolutely how would you know oh yeah i got an idea i'm gonna burn the hoof and then i'm gonna boil it and try to eat it or i don't even i think he actually just cooked it and then cut off a piece and ate the hoof Mm-hmm. That is so. What I thought was interesting is when he was talking about how all the animals wanted to eat the like lips because they're looking for the fat. Maybe that's from a different episode, but these animals would go eat the fat because mm-hmm. that's what they wanted to. That was their like number one target. Yeah, it makes me think that we should start incorporating more liver into our diet because every animal goes for the liver first do you know what's funny is so erica we've been reading a book on pregnancy and liver is the one of the that is the number one thing they recommend you eat for your child and that is not a common part of the american diet big liver needs to get on a on the map (laughs) (laughs) it's not great 
It doesn't taste good, but we've been eating it. <laughs> uh, how do you prepare it? Do you do liver pate? Yeah, you can do it a ton of different ways. Um, so they have like liver you can buy, which is like, like a, like a, not in a deli meat, but you can basically eat it with crackers or you can, you know, what we're, we've been doing is mixing it with beef, um, sure to spread it out and you can, um, burgers, do it. You can do burgers. You can do it, uh, on the stove. There's a number of different ways to do it, but man, it's, you know, you're eating liver. That's for sure. Yeah. I've had liver pate just kind of forcing myself to do it. Um, and it, again, not super enjoyable, but, uh, apparently it's the most healthy food we can possibly eat. Yeah. Other than perhaps fish eggs, I think, uh, or like, you know, certain fish organs I bet are probably really good too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, mean, I love we, seeing we the could, fish. They pull out of that lake. Holy cow! Just those moves. things are just monsters. And then they when look you so realize healthy too, they they look great. And then you realize it's like a twenty-six or thirty-year-old fish, and you're just like, holy cow! That's such a long life for a aquatic animal. <laughs> to I, I it just blows my mind to think that a fish would get to be that old. I mean. Sea turtles, obviously, super old. Whales, super old. I think dolphins live, I don't know, 50, 60 years. Um, but to see like a, a, a fish, you know, up in northern Canada, it just kind of blows my mind. Uh, and I love the uh, clothing that they make out of the animal pelts, too. That's another one of those things. It's just like, holy cow. Going to skin the animal, make some clothes out of it. I mean, it, it's, a, it's just a fun fun way and i love the um emotional toll that the contestants go through and what Mm. they tell you it's like the purest form of humanity that i think i've i've witnessed in any sort of content you know it's like just so raw when you see people struggling with the gravity of being alone for 100 days what goes through your mind um with no distraction. I mean, it's just a way to cut through, um, the, the, the bullshit that we occupy ourselves with. Uh, and these, these people tell you about it and it's like, you, I feel such a bond to them after you, it. you do, you see like the inside of them, you know, you see like what's going on in their mind and how they handle adversity. And we were just laughing when you compare that to just some of the crap that's on TV, <laughs> you turn on, abc and this you see like right now they have like putt putt american ninja warrior type courses and you're just like oh my gosh well um, how does this compare i i gotta i gotta mention this one because it blew my mind when i saw an advertisement for it are you familiar with the challenge Mm-mm. so basically there was this mtv series that came out like i don't know probably 10 to 15 years ago, like we were in high school, it was sort of around the like the Laguna Beach days where you had all of these very attractive people that MTV would put in a house, soak them all in booze, and then, you know, put it in a hot environment so people aren't wearing a lot of clothes. You're going to get some drama, that's for sure. Oh gosh. And then what they do, though, is they have these elimination challenges. And it's an innovation off of Survivor, basically, where they try and do Survivor with like, really attractive people who are emotionally fragile and they um put them in these challenges that are usually like grueling kind of physical and mental challenges you know think of like the survivor elimination games or whatever or immunity games that that type of thing where you're you know putting guys in shoulder pads and a helmet and saying take this ball and get it to the other side and you know team a anything goes try and stop them and so it's very very barbaric and it's funny because they just refreshed this show and they're bringing back all of these old people who when the show initially happened were probably i don't know in their 20s and now they're probably in their 30s and 40s and uh it's so funny to watch these companies just recycle content and concepts so readily 
and just spoon feed audiences like, oh, what do you know? We're refreshing the challenge. You're going to see all these washed up reality TV stars fight it out again. Um, but people are going to watch it because they have these relationships to these characters because they saw them do all this whatever. And so it's it's just it just yeah, blows where my are mind. They now? Where are they now type stuff? Yeah. And then the the fact that, you know, we as a as a generation, you know, that's that's targeted squarely at my generation because I can recall the previous show that they're re that they're rebooting and i find it just amazing that the reboots um they make enough money to work people are satisfied to watch that content again just blows my mind <laughs> but it's, it's crazy what's out there it is it is not it's not fresh content right off the top of the dome like the rumpus room podcast no nope. or uh or the nba insiders um I, I got to call out one comment because I did watch uh, the post-game interview with Kevin Durant of the Game 7 Finals. And um, the reporter, a reporter asked a question and said, you know, how do you feel about you guys going in and missing shots down the stretch in overtime and losing the game? And Kevin Durant said something that I just really appreciated. He said, you know, the, the Milwaukee Bucks are a great team and they won the game. So uh, I don't want to take anything from them. They, you know, they deserve to win or whatever. And he turned the que the question around and supported the other team as opposed to being like, oh, yeah, we should have won, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that to me was just such a pure action of like sportsmanship that, um, you know, uh, you got, we talked about the Naomi Osaka quitting because the press was, or, you know, dropping out of press conferences. That was an option of, uh, or that was, you know, her solution to some of this gotcha journalism. And here, I thought that was just such a skillful response to that question, which really was aimed at, you know, kind of taking away something from the team that won. So um, wonderful, wonderful display of sportsmanship there, which I really appreciated. Always refreshing to see that. Well, um, that's all we got for you today, folks. Tune in next week and we'll be back kicking it here. Yeah.